Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. This episode comes out just two days after 4th of July here in the U.S., so it seemed fitting to look back on what led to celebrating this holiday. From the women's side, of course. Growing up in the U.S., the American Revolution is, of course, something that I've been taught about many times. I remember learning the story of Betsy Ross sewing the first flag, which isn't true, by the way. It's a story her grandson spread. And certain high-profile men's wives, like Abigail Adams and Martha Washington, just sort of getting an honorable mention. But otherwise, I don't really remember learning much about the women during the fight for independence. But the women were not idly sitting by, waiting for the men to return for more. Not by a long shot. So today, let's learn how the women, called our founding mothers by historian Cookie Roberts, helped us become Americans. A little background and or refresher first, though. The American Revolution was nearly two decades long, from the unrest in the beginning through the end of the war. The war itself was eight and a half years long. The British started imposing laws and taxes on the colonies starting in the 1760s, and the colonists started protesting based on taxation without representation. Patriots were those that were for separation from England, and loyalists were those that were against it, named so for being loyal to the English crown. The first Continental Congress was held in the fall of 1774, and the first battles in Concord and Lexington happened on April 19, 1775, starting the War for Independence. George Washington was appointed commander-in-chief on June 15th that same year. Then, the Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Second Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776, in which the United States declared itself independent from Great Britain. The war finally ended on September 3rd, 1783. Before and during the war, the women patriots supported the cause by boycotting British goods. In general, women at the time were responsible for managing the household and purchasing any domestic goods, and so they used their buying power to protest. Prior to any thoughts of independence, England was a major exporter of textiles and discouraged the colonies from producing wool, instead expecting them to export their raw materials to England and to buy the finished textiles from them. England passed the Wool Act of 1699 to bar the colonies from exporting any wool, wool yarn, or wool cloth. The colonists then began to use flax and hemp to make homespun textiles like linen. The Quakers in Boston began the homespun movement in 1767, where instead of buying British clothing or textiles, women would continue on the traditions of weaving and spinning their own cloth to make the clothes for the family. They also made much-needed blankets and clothing for the Continental Army during the war this way. By defying the British by refusing luxury goods like silk and satins in favor of clothing made at spinning and quilting bees, these women played a major role in the American resistance. When Esther de Baird Reed learned that the Continental Army was hungry and in need of clothing, she gathered other political women and went door-to-door asking for donations. They raised $300,000, and after writing to George Washington asking what to do with the money— The women spent it on linen and started sewing shirts for the men. She unfortunately died of fever a few months into making the shirts, but her friend Sarah Franklin Bach, the daughter of Benjamin Franklin, took over, and they ended up making 2,000 shirts for the soldiers. Esther also anonymously published a broadsheet called Sentiments of an American Woman 
to encourage politically-minded women to show patriotism by materialists supporting the army and inspired movements similar to hers all across the country. Another way was boycotting tea, and by not serving in her house, Owen marked herself and her household as supporters of the Patriot side. The Edenton Tea Party, inspired by the Boston Tea Party and led by Penelope Barker, was a gathering of 51 women who all signed a pledge to give up tea and boycott all other British goods, quote, until such a time that all acts which tend to enslave our native country shall be repealed. This was a landmark event because it was organized entirely by women who up to this point had never been involved in politics. Barker believed this was a noteworthy action and sent a copy to the British press. She said, Maybe it only has been men who have protested the king up until now. That only means we women have taken too long to let our voices be heard. We are signing our names to a document, not hiding ourselves behind costumes like the men in Boston did at their tea party. The British will know who we are. In England, they were largely dismissive and derogatory towards their actions, but in the colonies, it inspired many others to begin boycotting and the women were praised by the patriots. When another group of women in Pepperell, Massachusetts, learned about the Boston Tea Party, they all gathered in a town common and burned all of their tea. They then went a step further after that, though. When the men left to fight, the women decided to form their own militia to protect the town. Prudence, or Prue Cummings Wright, was elected leader of the group and was called Miss David's Wright's Guard. They wore their husband's clothes and carried anything from muskets to farming tools for weapons. Part of the reason they formed was that Prudence had overheard her brother, who was sympathizing with a British, talking to a friend about smuggling information to Boston. So the militia met them at the one bridge they had to cross, confiscated their documents, and held them prisoner overnight while their messages were sent to the Committee of Safety for review. The two men were exiled from the area, and Prudence's brother never returned. Most American children know the story of Paul Revere's ride, but how many of you have ever heard of Sybil Ludington? Her father was a colonel that oversaw 400 militiamen, who at the time all spread out across an area from Danbury, Connecticut, to Putnam County, New York, for spring planting on their farms. After learning that the British planned a raid on Danbury, where the Continental Army had a supply depot, Sybil rode up to 40 miles through the night to gather and warn her father's men, and warning other houses along the way too. The men gathered too late to save Danbury, but they successfully pushed them back to the Long Island Sound. She rode twice as far as Revere during a thunderstorm and evaded capture by bandits and loyalists. She was just 16 years old at the time. When war was declared and the men went off to join the army, often their wives followed them. Some did it to stay close to their loved ones and support the army. Others did it because they would not have survived on their own otherwise, and this provided security, shelter, and food for them. These wives, along with runaway servants, widows, and impoverished women called camp followers, would stay behind the army and do things like cooking, washing, mending clothes, and even provide medical help for the men when needed. They would help with the army chores as well, such as swabbing down the cannons with water. Women would receive rations for their work, albeit a much smaller per portion than the men. This caused tension at times, since supplies for the army were already pretty slim. But George Washington, as frustrated as he was with the disruption of order of his camps, couldn't deny the necessity of having these women behind them, providing a much-needed support. When large groups of the army suffered from disease, George Washington recruited nurses from within this group of women as well as outside of the camps, and in 1777, Congress authorized these nurses to be paid $8 a month. 
Sometimes they would get caught up in the fighting as well. The story of Molly Pitcher was actually based on a woman named Mary Ludwig Hayes, who was bringing water to the men at the Battle of Monmouth, and when her husband was wounded while firing artillery, she took his place. Margaret Corbin would help her husband, who handled ammunition for cannons. She was severely wounded and left for dead alongside her husband during the British assault on Fort Washington until a physician came and tended to her. She was unable to use her left arm after that, but still went to West Point and joined the Invalid Regiment, taking care of other wounded soldiers until she was formally discharged in 1783. She was the first American female to receive a soldier's pension after the war, although it was only half of what the male soldiers received. Plenty of women also disguised themselves as men to join the army and actively take part in the fighting. Anna Maria Lane followed her husband when he joined up, but she went dressed as a man to be a soldier next to him, not as a camp follower. She unfortunately was shot in her leg in the Battle of Germantown, which left her disabled for the rest of her life. Later, in 1808, she would petition for and receive a pension for her service, which was much more than her husband's since she was permanently injured during the fighting and he was not. One of the best examples we have of a woman fighting disguised is Deborah Sampson, who fought under the alias of Robert Shirtliff, the name of her brother that had passed away. There is a paper trail of her combat service, and she served in the Light Infantry Company of the 4th Massachusetts Regiment, joining in the spring of 1782. Her comrades called her their beardless friend Molly, never actually suspecting that she really was a woman in disguise. In Westchester County, New York, she was wounded twice, once on her forehead and again with a shot in her thigh. She allowed the physicians to treat her head, but not her leg right away. Not wanting to be found out, she slipped out of the field hospital and removed one of the bullets in her leg herself using a penknife and a sewing needle. Another one was lodged too deep and never healed right. Her identity was discovered later in Philadelphia when she contracted a fever, but the physician that was treating her kept her secret rather than reporting her. She was honorably discharged by Henry Knox when the war was over and joined other veterans to petition the new government for service pensions. She did marry and have children, and for the extra income to make ends meet, would give lectures on her service during the war. There is a statue of her outside the public library in Sharon, Massachusetts, where she lived after the war. It wasn't just the common soldiers' wives that followed the army. The wives of officers and generals would follow them too, and were equally as helpful in providing support as the other wives, and would raise the morale of the men. Lucy Flucker, a daughter of Loyalist, married General Henry Knox, who was below her social class, and all ties between her and her family were cut. Deciding to leave Boston and side with the Americans rather than join the British, Lucy sewed his weapons into her coat, and the two of them left the city in the middle of the night, heading for the army encampment in Cambridge. He joined the Continental Army and became artillery commander, and she struggled alone at home as a new mother at first, and she later joined him as much as she could while he was on his campaigns, determined to not be alone at home anymore. She joined with him while encamped at Valley Forge and became friends with Kitty Green, the wife of General Nathaniel Green. Martha Washington was also at Valley Forge and spent every winter with her husband wherever they were camped at, spending half of the war at the front with him. She would copy George's letters, knit for the soldiers, and helped raise money with other women to help buy supplies and shirts for the men, and when they were at Hasbrook House headquarters, she would host dinners. The wives of political men played their own roles, too. Abigail Adams was very opinionated on many political topics and pushed for separating from Britain long before the war. 
She frequently spoke about politics, and her opinion was valued by John Adams. The couple wrote more than 1,100 letters back and forth and discussed topics like government, politics, and women's rights. When she learned he would be on the committee that would ultimately draft the Declaration of Independence, she famously wrote to him, quote, Remember the ladies. She also believed that all slaves should be emancipated, having reservations about Washington at first because he was a slaveholder. She also advocated for gender equality in public education and that the social, political, and educational needs of women needed more attention. Mercy Otis Warren was also a prolific writer, passionate about gaining independence from Britain, writing in December of 1774 before the war broke out, America stands armed with resolution and virtue, but she still recoils at the idea of drawing the sword against the nation from whence she derived her origin. She was also a playwright and wrote dramas and satires that denounced the British leadership. She was also a supporter of the Boston Tea Party and urged others to boycott British goods. Once the war started, she wrote accounts of it and published it as a book, History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution, in 1805, making her one of the first published American women. Another woman who took up the pen and was also among first women to be published and the first African-American woman published was Phyllis Wheatley, a slave in Boston, who wrote poetry on patriotism and, her, and human virtues. Her collection book poems on various subjects, religious and moral, published in 1773, was popular on both sides of the Atlantic. She even wrote a poem about George Washington called To His Excellency George Washington, and he invited her to Cambridge headquarters in 1776, where she personally read the poem to him. She was freed when her master died and married, but the life for free blacks at the time was harsh, and she died alone after her husband was imprisoned for his debt. Other black women also contributed to the war effort. Most were slaves at the time, both in the North and in the South, and hoped that the new nation would abolish slavery. Some of these women working as domestic house slaves would spy for the Continental Army, reporting back what they overheard from British officials. Many, many more, though, men, women, and children alike, would go to British camps to join them. The British were offering freedom for anyone willing to abandon their so-called traitorous masters. The punishment for doing this if caught by their master was execution, but many did it anyway, only to be treated just as poorly by the British. They were poorly fed and abandoned if a contagious disease started to spread. Many chose a side based on the hope that they would be free if they won. In the new United States, though, life for slaves only became more strict than anything else. Similarly, the Native Americans mostly sided with the British during the war, but a Cherokee woman named Nanya Hai sided with the Patriots. Many Cherokee wanted to drive out the white settlers encroaching on their lands, but Nanya Hai possibly wanted to keep things civil with these new settlers, or could have worried what retaliation they would face if the British lost. It's not exactly clear why she wanted to help the Patriots. She was what they called a beloved woman, and one of her duties in this role was to watch over prisoners captured during battles or raids. When she would find out the Cherokee planned to attack nearby settlements, she would release any Americans they were holding so they could go and warn them. After the war, she helped to negotiate peace with a new country, but urged the Cherokee to not give up any more land. Many women took part in spy networks and espionage for the Patriot side. Both sides hired women as cooks and maids, and with common perception that women were innocent and non-threatening, this made it very easy for them to eavesdrop on their employers. Camp followers could also easily find out valuable information. 
The Sedicate Spy Ring, also known as the Culper Ring, was established in 1778 and based in New York and, and Long Island. It employed both men and women who, for the most part, used the professions as a cover, reporting back any information their British military patrons may voluntarily share with them. Agent 335 was a member of this ring, 335 being a numeric code to represent the word woman. She was only ever identified by this number to protect her identity and work. She supplied accurate, timely information to George Washington, played an important role in the counterintelligence missions that found out Benedict Arnold's treason, and she facilitated the arrest of Major John Andre, head of England's intelligence operations in New York. As important as the work she did was, today we still have no idea of her true identity. It is believed she may have been a prominent member of a loyalist family with easy access to British society and British officers. Several women devised other ways of getting information to commanders. Some helped discreetly carry and deliver army dispatches and sensitive military information by hiding these papers under their petticoats while traveling through enemy territories. Anna Smith-Strong came up with a wash line signaling system for Abraham Woodhull on where to find Caleb Brewster's whaleboat, who would hide his boat in six different places to avoid the British. Woodhull would pass the information along to Brewster, who would then carry it to George Washington. Anna would hang a black petticoat if Brewster was nearby, and a number of handkerchiefs scattered throughout other garments on the line would indicate where to meet him at. In British-occupied Philadelphia, officers would use the Darrow House for conferences, and Lydia Darrow would hide in an adjoining closet while they met and take notes, which her husband then transcribed into shorthand on tiny slips of paper. Lydia would then hide these pieces under fabric of buttons that she put on her 14-year-old son's coat. He would then be sent to visit his older brother outside the city, who was Lieutenant Charles Darrow with the American forces. The lieutenant could then retrieve these slips of paper from the buttons and take this information to his officers. There are probably many more stories like these, but because of the nature of secrecy when it comes to spying, there isn't much written evidence about who did what. Whether they were spying, fighting, or cleaning and cooking, refusing to buy British goods, no matter what these women did, every little action helped further the patriotic cause, and for that, they should be remembered. Right, so that was a lot of information about a lot of women I know. For as many times as I learned about the American Revolution in school, there's so much about what the women did that I never learned. I found this topic interesting again with the different perspective of through women's contributions, and I feel like my knowledge of this basis of my country has greatly improved with the internet dives I did for this episode. That's it for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.